Hi, everybody. It's nice to see so many people here, and uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for coming. My name is Lindsay Abrams. I'm the moderator, uh, th the great distinction of which is that I get to sit in the middle, uh, which is my favorite spot. Each of us is going to talk a little bit tonight about the subject, women's writing in the future. Participants in the two earlier pen panels on the Golden Notebook and Taboos for Women Writers both informed and changed the thinking of those of us who were there. Really, that was the intention of this series, to create a more public forum for the constant exchange of ideas we women writers and readers have all the time, over coffee, while walking, and of course, on the phone. I expect that each panelist's way of thinking about our topic and talking about it will be different from written theoretical pieces to more conversational and anecdotal presentations. These styles have to do with our personalities as writers, not to mention our schedules. I'd like to say that the comments tonight are in no way exclusive or definitive, but rather in addition to an ongoing discourse that already includes extensive feminist scholarship in all disciplines, including literary theory, psychoanalytic theory, anthropology, history, philosophy, as well as literature itself. I'm sure that many people in the chairs out there will bring up ideas, writers, and books that we up here will have left out or hopelessly misrepresented. We thank you in advance. There will be a microphone for that purpose later on. I'd like to introduce all the panelists now in the order we're going to speak. After that, we hope to talk with many of you and amongst ourselves. As I said, I'm Lindsay Abrams, the author of three novels, Charting by the Stars, Double Vision, and one just finished, Our History in New York. I'm a member of the faculty at Sarah Lawrence and writer in residence at the City College of New York. My most recent projects are co-editing with Esther Broner the fall 1992 Goodbye Columbus issue of the Literary Review and founding a new interdisciplinary magazine, Global City Review, whose first issue, Sexual Politics, will come out in spring of 1993. Speaking next will be Marina Budos. Her fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Plowshares, The Literary Review, The Caribbean Writer, The Kenyan Review, The Portable Lower East Side Issue, New Asia, Yellow Silk, and elsewhere. Marina was awarded Yaddo's 1989 Granville Hicks Award and has also been awarded a Fulbright Grant to India. She teaches writing and literature at Eugene Lang College, the new school for social research, and is currently at work on her first novel. Next to me is Katha Pollitt, a poet and essayist, as well as an associate editor of The Nation magazine. Among her awards and prizes are the National Book Critics Circle Award for her first book of poems, Antarctic Traveler, and this year, the National Magazine Award for Essays Published in the Nation. She teaches at Barnard College. Kate Russian, on my far left, has received fellowships from the Artists Foundation and the Fine Arts Center in Provincetown, 
1988, she won the Grolier Poetry Prize. Her work has appeared in Sojourner, GCN, Callaloo, This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color, Homegirls, a Black Feminist Anthology, Gay and Lesbian Poetry in Our Time, and An Ear to the Ground. In 1986, she collaborated with members of the Underground Railway Theater on the play Sanctuary, The Spirit, Spirit of Harriet Tubman. For 10 years, she has been a member of the New Words Bookstore Collective. She has taught creative writing at Curry College and is currently teaching black women writers at MIT. Her first book of poetry, The Black Backups, is forthcoming from Firebrand Books. Next to me on the other side, and who will speak last, is Grace Paley, who is the author of three collections of stories, the most recent being Later the Same Day. It's titled The Clearest Definition of Narrative I Know. And two collections of poetry, Leaning Forward, and the just-published New and Collected Poems from Tilbury House. Her other book, Long Walks and Intimate Talks, a collaboration with the artist and writer Vera Williams, was once a calendar and now defies categorization. This defying of categories is probably a good place to start in thinking about women's writing in the future. Need a little water. Literature is a powerful way of structuring experience and interpreting it. Stories tend to repeat themselves, making sense of new experience in light of the old. Oedipus, Sleeping Beauty, Hamlet, to name three characters and fates, all underpin our psychic assumptions about life, love, death, ambition, destiny, psychology, gender, the individual, society, procreation, and that's the short list. All serious women writers, as all serious male writers, live in this sea of assumptions where it is possible either to drown or swim to shore. That shore, if reached, always represents something new in subject matter and form, some new concept of what it means to be human. Probably the main difference between men and women writers, to continue the analogy, is that we're more likely to drown. A concrete example is Virginia Woolf. Since the dawn of language, Western literature has undergone a revolution in storytelling, reflecting a dynamic sense of reality and the concept of selfhood. From the oral tradition of the epic poem to the more intimate, while exalted, sphere of Greek than Elizabethan drama, to the novel, which mirrored the reorganization of households and societies, as well as the emergence of the individual and, importantly, property. Later, the novel became a conduit for consciousness itself, leading to modernism and where we are today, postmodern, pre-global, whatever name we ascribe to what in the present holds the seeds for the future. Part of the revolution in storytelling recently is women's distinct voice. In his book, The Five Faces of Modernism, Matei Kalinescu speaks about a carnivalized postmodern narrative. This seems to me an apt mirror to our minds in a television information culture and an apt description of how we ourselves have come to organize both individual and communal experience in a global world. 
So in that sense, there's a process of inclusion going on in literature, an expanding emergent self in an ever-enlarging context. My grandmother, who died last year at 96, lived a lifetime of what seemed to her like speeded up history in both technological and psychological terms, from horse-drawn carriages and home-delivered ice to birth control and rocket ships to the moon. But in that same time, we have also witnessed all around us a breaking up and a breaking down of families, of countries, of cultures, of canons. And there are the ever-present divides along racial and, of course, gender lines, which, if anything, appear to be widening. These opposing realities, one, the necessity for the acknowledgement and acceptance of the profound differences among individuals and their varieties of experience, and two, the necessity for community and globalism, seem to me the essential terms for talking about lives and literature of the future. Along with writers of other non-dominant cultures, women writers have been essential in shaping these terms. I want to make the explicit point that women's writing is not some separate <coughs> genre or specialty, though like all writers who expand the nature of what has been and can be written about, our central subject matter usually has trouble entering the mainstream. We remember Maridel Lesseur, who when she presented her editor with The Girl, a novel that included a scene of childbirth, was told that that was inappropriate material for fiction and to write more like Hemingway. Luckily, she had no intention of doing this. But what that editor didn't know or didn't want to know is that the inappropriate subject matter of today is the common knowledge of tomorrow. As Marilyn French makes quite clear in the introduction to her new book of feminist theory, The War Against Women, the history of patriarchy has been about the use of power to retain dominance by the few over the many. The lives and bodies of men of other non-dominant cultures and women of all cultures have consistently been used to that end. Both multiculturalism and feminism are ways of reorganizing conceptions of social order and power relations. It's interesting that when for the first time women and non-white races began to enter Western history, someone tried to declare the end of it. Not only is history continuing blithely to accumulate both as events and the writing about those events, but if you want to think of history as an imperfect rendering of what in the past seemed worth recording, it continues to need rewriting. In a sense, all literature and scholarship takes on this task of rewriting. And of course, a new history allows us to imagine the future in a new way too. So this is how I think about women's writing in the future, like a gigantic reclamation project. The fancy name for this is hermeneutics. For writers, this has everything to do with point of view, who's looking and who's talking, the ultimate measure of the speaker being what and who is seen and valued. And as was pointed out in the panel on the Golden Notebook, who is being spoken to? Certainly, Toni Morrison and Beloved and recently Jazz, Alice Walker, Paul Marshall and others have recreated American history and lives, both from a female and African-American perspective. Women of all races and in all cu cultures, which includes lesbian culture, have slowly but surely reconfigured the boundaries of the past. 
this creates new landscapes, new stories. For women writers, there is also the necessity to interpret our histories and stories, to make our own critical context, which is what we're doing tonight. A number of women writers include this context as an integral part of their fiction or poetry. One example is Krista Wolf's Cassandra, a retelling of the Trojan War from the viewpoint of the female seer who predicted that the war would end in defeat, that all wars end in defeat, but was not listened to. To those of you who are familiar with this novel, you'll remember the autobiographical essays that go with the first person text in which the German novelist explains how she wrote the book and why the consequences of glorification of war in our time and world. Susan Deitch's novel, L.C., comes to mind, too. The book is composed of three parts, the central one being the translated text of a diary written by Lucienne Crozier, her initials L.C., who lived in Paris during the failed February Revolution of 1848. The diary is briefly introduced by the translator herself, then followed by an extensive epilogue narrated by a former feminist radical in Berkeley, who at one time worked for the translator. This ep epilogue includes the diaristic account of the narrator's own radical past, which resulted in going underground. Further information about the translator, who is revealed to have been both reclusive and apolitical, as well as a different version translation of the final chapter of Lucienne Crozier's diary and therefore her life. Major topics of this novel are how stories are interpreted, the primary role of commentary, and how all stories make commentary on and change other stories. I also think of Jane Cooper's long poem on Willa Cather, which is about Cather herself, as well as a critical reading of the evolution of her novels, not to mention a beautiful meditation on a woman's life followed over 50 years. Women so often lose their stories after youth. I'm particularly struck by the commonality of women's fiction and poetry, not only with interpretation or criticism, but also with autobiography and memoir. I'm reminded of Kennedy Frazier's remark in a review of Louise DeSalvo's book, Virginia Woolf, The Impact of Childhood Sexual Abuse on Her Life and Work, that at an earlier time in her life, Frazier longed to read not novels, but real stories of real women's lives. I think we recognize this feeling and how it underscores the commingling of forms that women writers increasingly work with. To get back to what I said earlier about Grace Paley's and Vera Williams' long walks and intimate talks, women's important books are becoming increasingly uncategorizable. Colette, Marguerite Duras, Maxine Hong Kingston, and Audre Lorde come to mind as four of many writers whose first person is that above anything else. Sometimes I call this the omniscient first person implying a kind of vision which is both explicitly self-defining but also witness to a broader life, a multiplicity of lives. In regard to this multiplicity, you can think also of the story collections of Grace Paley, 
Gloria Naylor's Women of Brewster Place, E.M. Broner's A Weave of Women, and Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine, to name only a few of the many writers working in this way. Virginia Woolf, who staked out so much territory that has remained central to women writers, introduced us to the chorus of many voices in her extraordinary modernist novel, The Waves, underscoring both the necessity for emotionalized self-knowledge and other knowledge, and that the truth is, by definition, that of the group, the community. It seems clear that evolving consciousness about children, race and gender, war and peace, globalism, our place in nature, are topics that have been central to feminist discourse and will continue to be. The fact that some of these subjects are also addressed by men in no way negates that reality. Not only has women's writing changed the contemporary reference points of women in world culture, but it has also changed the reference points of men. This has not been adequately acknowledged. Ultimately, universality, which recently has gotten a bad name, is where writers posit their sense of human community. I think it comes from speaking about people you know to people you don't know. We may even begin to include plants and animals. It's what I, expe I expect women and all writers will have to do in the future as local and translated literatures expand to reflect the true diversity and richness of experience in this huge thing called life. Of course, that's the best scenario. There are obviously more dire possibilities for women's and the Earth's future. But as a writer, I reserve the right to end this story happily tonight, which is to give it no ending at all. Thank you. Um, first off, I'd like to thank the members of the Women's Committee of Penn for inviting me here. It's, um, it's really quite wonderful because this series has been jam-packed with so many writers that I've admired for such a long time. Um, in fact, in thinking about who's on the panel, it also led me to reflect somehow personally on how I wound up being here. And it seemed only out of a personal story that I could somehow make some, some conjecture about the future. Um, about the age I am now, my own mother was a housewife with two children, living in a rundown house in Hollis, Queens, where the neighbors weren't especially pleased by the interracial family living among them. This was the early 60s, after all. My mother was often angry, though I wasn't really sure why. It was about that time that I would watch with envy as my brother came home with books in his bag. Even then, books seemed both a way to inhabit a private, imaginative space, yet to somehow be connected to the world out there. So I asked my mother to read. She did. And while I immersed myself in the antics of the cat in the hat, my mother was freed up to do her own reading. At the time, she was reading a book called The Golden Notebook. At the time, there might have been a hurricane sweeping through the rafters, wrecking our house. The Golden Notebook was a book that was to change my mother's life. The Golden Notebook was a book that was to change my life. Throughout my childhood, I lay awake at night hearing the sounds of that hurricane the shattering of my family, the premise of my home. And it was out of that feminine darkness 
that I swore myself to a very different future, free from my own mother's past. No early babies, no household drudgery. Be free, independent, don't set down roots. You know you're in trouble when your silverware starts to match. Many of us came of age when the language of choice and rage was being crystallized around us. It was a childhood landscape built entirely out of distance, distance from the past and above all, the women who came before us. It was, in fact, a very American impulse to cure our social ills through rootlessness. For the first time ever, women were being reared not to inhabit their mother's homes, but to stride off into empty rooms called equality. So the first point I'd like to suggest tonight is that in many ways, our future is not our own. Our futures as writers are inscribed with the previous generation's rage, their deferrals, their limitations, and their hopes. So what has happened? What kind of world surrounds these women in their brightly lit rooms? For myself, it was another person's history, along with my father's immigrant ideals, which shunted me like a whirling football into a public sphere once occupied by men. But I've also learned the hard way that the world I've been released into is based on individualism, the market, dangerously poised to keep us all ahistorical, self-involved, consuming instead of loving. When I look around me, I see many friends aglow with independence and choice, but I also see another more shadowy rim surrounding their troubled faces. I see unsureness as artists, anorexia, confusion, a blurred sense of who and what they are writing for. I ask myself, what exactly is going on here? For one, Coming of age during and after the hurricanes, after the divorces and changes and denials, meant our mothers were busy picking up the shards, just learning the ways of the world as we were. Rootless, with few examples of power, we had to improvise. Oftentimes, we had to look to male mentors for clues on how to cope. Mentors, I might add, who did not necessarily have our best interests in mind. And coming of age as an artist in the 80s meant coming into a world where money counted and art seemed ruthlessly pigeonholed. For many I've spoken to, to even take up the responsibility of a woman writer in the world is nothing short of terrifying. It's hard enough just to face the page each day. Having won the permission to speak, they rightly fear agendas, perhaps having to create characters which are role models for other women. Such a pressure can be deadly for a writer. And, and those who have only a fragile sense of permission will be damaged the most if, the moment they finally do speak, they are hit with a lot of shoulds or should nots. Somehow I can't believe that's what Virginia Woolf had in mind. And yet, without sounding too much like a cultural commissar, I still believe there's so many rich nuances which have yet to be written about reckoning with the painful gaps we forded while lugging an unfair burden of expectation, or the now complicated juggling and improvising between men and women, or even allowing ourselves a greater breadth of aesthetic experimentation. Finally, we have yet to write as part of a world which is more culturally complicated than I've seen in women's writing. Frankly, given my background, this bothers me more than anything. 
Why do so-called ethnic characters pop up like extra guests, if at all? Certainly, they can't be the prerogative of only so-called ethnic writers. And the manner in which multiculturalism is supposed to redress this is certainly not making the picture more complicated, but embarrassingly simplistic. Perhaps it's the same bureaucratic gesture which also blighted the inclusion of women's writing into our culture. I've noticed that women's writing is still perceived as being for women only, as if male readers and writers couldn't draw inspiration from them if they so choose. Isn't that the real taboo? Imagining ourselves as having artistic authority, something to say to both men and women alike, the world? For the future, what I'd simply like us to do as writers is to stand back, take a look at the lives we've distanced ourselves from and where we stand now at the end of the century. We needn't fear that our private rooms are under siege by any cultural commissars. Nadine Gordimer has written that her subjects choose her. Yet Gordimer also keeps her eyes fearlessly open. So can we. In fact, I think if we open up our imaginations, we will all be delighted at how much this culturally complicated world lives and breathes inside of us. As women, as writers, we are in the world now more than ever before. My first response when I was asked to participate in our discussion here tonight about women's writing and the future was, why ask me? I am, after all, a person who confidently predicted on the radio yet that Bill Clinton would drop out of the primary race within a few days of Jennifer Flowers' press conference. I don't know what came over me. <laughs> this experience taught me a valuable lesson in would-be punditry, never make a time-bound specific prediction. Um, mostly, however, when we speculate about the future, we are voting our hopes or our fears. My hopeful scenario for women's writing goes like this. The women's movement has had a tremendous and positive effect on every aspect of women's literary situation. It has given many women the courage to write who would otherwise have remained silent, has allowed us to take ourselves seriously as creative writers and active intellects, to challenge the teachers and families and cultural commissars who would dismiss women writers as incapable of producing important work. The women's movement has given women writers more than courage, though. It's given us a subject, ourselves, and a moral project, the exploration of female experience and the explosion of social myths that have prevented that experience from being viewed truthfully. The women's movement has given us a literary history all those lost women, remember that feature in Ms. Magazine, whose books, however celebrated in their own day, were forgotten by subsequent generations, or if not forgotten, mocked and scorned, or if not forgotten, mocked or scorned, relegated to the decorous parlor of literature and given a glass of sherry and a pat on the head. It amazes me to recall that when I was in college, Virginia Woolf, who we did read, and I suppose I should be grateful for that, was treated as a rarefied esthetician conducting peculiar experiments in prose. Um, the women's movement has another gift for women writers. It gave us readers. Most devotees of fiction have historically been women, a fact that caused Hawthorne, among many other male writers, to rage. One wonders why. As with psychiatrists, gynecologists, and the clergy, the female audience, like the male, vested authority in male writers and followed the authority of male critics. That's changed. 
The women's movement has made women readers less dutiful and allowed them to choose books by women without feeling that they are revealing some dreadful proof of mediocrity and lack of culture. Finally, the women's movement has helped make a, make a more respective critical climate for books by women. They are more likely to be published, to be reviewed, to be reviewed by women, to be reviewed on their merits rather than on the jacket photo, to win prizes, to be discussed in scholarly and critical books about contemporary literature, at least, you know, one paragraph, and to influence other writers, even some, some gasp writers who are men. <clears throat> in short, the situation of women's writing is immensely changed from what it was in, say, the 40s and the 50s economically, demographically, socially, and imaginatively, too. Surveying this happy progress, an optimist will naturally predict more of the same, onward and upward forever. But then my fears speak up. All that's true, or almost true, and yet it has a kind of dated quality. Maybe it was truer 10 years ago. Yes, more women are writing, publishing, winning fame and fortune and critical acclaim and so on. Women do indeed poise for some major breakthrough out of the literary pink-collar ghetto into the broad and happy expanse of the general culture, and yet it's possible to view all this wonderfulness with a certain sense of deja vu. This has happened before. All those lost women rediscovered by feminist publishers like Virago Press, why did we need to go find them? In their own time, maybe, they were us, seeming to tremble on the brink of a new order of the sexes, a new cultural respect. Are we tomorrow's Mason Clare, Leonie Adams, Margaret Kennedy? It was in the late 20s, I believe, that Edmund Wilson asserted that the best poets writing in his time were women. Eleanor Wiley, where are you now? It's true that women participate more widely in the literary world, or is it? On the one hand, the New York Times Book Review is now for the first time edited by a woman, something a Times man of my acquaintance assured me a mere 10 years ago would never happen. Harumph, harumph. On the other hand, the New Republic and the New York Review of Books and the Atlantic and Harper's have about as many women writers as the Congress has congresswomen. The big grants and prizes still disproportionately go to men, and I don't mean de demographically here, but I mean in terms of who's doing important work. And as you all noticed, you know, the uh, Faulkner Prize, 12 years, no woman. Um, that's sort of amazing when you think of what's been written in the last 12 years. If you look at women's writing thematically, the optimist and pessimist are no closer to agreement. Finally, says the optimist, the lives of women as perceived by women are getting their due as important materials for art. The kitchen gets equal billing with the whaling ship. Great, says the pessimist. I thought getting out of the kitchen was what the movement was supposed to be all about. Now I not only have to do all the cooking, I have to write about it too. Uh, but perhaps we can make a kind of peace between the optimist and the pessimist, our hopes and our fears. Structurally, I think it's true, women are better situated in terms of the business of writing, what Marx would have called is material-based than they ever have been. This is entirely due, in my opinion, to the women's movement. In terms of content, however, which women and which books and which dramatic situations are rewarded by the culture, the story is more ambiguous. There is space for transgressive fiction by women, the work of Angela Carter, for example, but how small a corner compared to the endless fate of novels in which a woman learns to count her blessings or is punished because she makes a smart woman's foolish choice. How far have we come when a woman writer achieves instant canonization for the good mother in which a ditzy young woman is punished for her sexual liberation with the loss of custody of her only child while the author shakes her head sadly and seems to say on every page, this is the way the world is, ladies, so grow up. Putting aside hopes and fears, optimism and pessimism, what would I like to see in writing by women? Not that you asked, I'll tell you. It's, 
It strikes me that some of what I miss in the fiction I read by women is the same thing I miss in today's organized women's movement, a sense of subversive, to use a trendy word, energy, fun, rebellion, and excess. As I said earlier, a central project of the women's movement has been the demolition of demeaning and belittling ideas about women and the corresponding foregrounding of a broad range of human experience dismissed as trivial because it has been the province of women. In an era of intense backlash against the women's movement and the sexual revolution, however, that project has taken a curious turn. It becomes the foundation for a new set of moral strictures about women. In politics, we have the cultural feminism of Carol Gilligan and her many admirers. Women are caring and sharing. Women are not interested in power, ambition, self-aggrandizement, or sex without love. In literature, we have a plethora of good wives, or at least good mothers, and nice, lonely, witty young women, unable to find the love the author insists they deserve and seems to think would solve their problems. It is as though we were still saying, look at me, I'm a worthwhile person, I matter. Why can't you be nice to me, See how, seeing how nice I am, how I share and care? <laughs> Quick, when was the last time you read a novel or a poem in which the sympathetic protagonist is promiscuous and not miserable, has an abortion and doesn't agonize about it, takes for herself the freedom and selfishness and ambition her creator herself possesses, or she would never have written the book you were reading. It's fascinating, for example, that the heroine of the most celebrated feminist political nightmare of recent years, Margaret Atwood's A Handmaid's Tale, in many ways a wonderful book, is not some rebellious, quirky, individualized adult, but a wet blanket nice girl, who at one point says that the thing she misses most about her old life is hand lotion. Look at me. <laughs> I'm a nice person. Be nice to me. Give me some hand lotion. I, I would like to see what a woman would do who set herself the imaginative project undertaken by many modern male writers, the enlargement of human understanding through the frank and exuberant depiction of an extravagantly bad person, a Humbert Humbert, an Alexander Portnoy. Bad heroines do exist in fiction by women, but usually they are embedded in tragic stories. Sula by Toni Morrison was the example that all my friends I discussed this with gave. Is it that only men think exploitative narcissism is funny? Surely it is not that only men are exploitative <laughs> narcissists. Perhaps women have been too busy trying to persuade the world we are worth paying attention to at all, trying to disprove all those misogynist <coughs> myths and stereotypes. And so we have framed our case perhaps a bit too much in terms of our moral worth, our virtue, our difference, like the Carol Gilliganians. Well, I think the present course of politics the present course of politics in America shows us, I think, the limits of that sort of appeal. Maybe it's time to try another tack. Instead of, look how nice I am, how serious, how sad, how about some fiction and some poetry in which the author claims attention for her heroine the, the way the male writers I've mentioned do? Here is someone not so nice at all. Take a good look. What you see is you. Thank you. and I'd like to thank uh, everyone who made tonight's panel possible. I'm going to focus my comments tonight on uh, African-American women writers and their work. I think the best way to talk about the future of African-American women writers and our work is to take a look at our past and what it teaches us. Uh, there are two historical surveys about black women writers that were published in the late 80s. One was the Harlem Renaissance and Beyond, Literary Biographies of 100 Black Women Writers, 
1900 to 1945, and Afro-American women writers, 1746 to 1933, an anthology and critical guide. These books remind me that at any given time, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of African-American women who have stories to tell, articles to write, books to publish, poetry to craft, lyrics to, sh to shape, research to complete, essays and papers to deliver. In classes, in writing groups, and reading groups all over the country, black women are meeting and talking and thinking, planning and creating. Now, whether or not these women publish their work, whether or not these women enter into colleges and universities and receive the financial resources to stay there, whether or not they have the time, the focus, the emotional, financial, educational, and creative support they need to continue on is another story. Whether or not they are able to maintain their health, whether or not they are able to sustain their families is another story. Whether we hear of them through Essence Magazine, the New York Times, National Public Radio, Newsweek, television interviews, or documentaries is another story. Our African-American women writers should not be taken for granted, despite the successes of writers such as Alice Walker and Toni Morrison over the past 20 years. There are certainly many more of us who would write and publish if we had adequate material support and could f somehow find relief from all-consuming commitments, not the least of which are earning a living, taking care of families, and working for political causes that are essential to us. There are so many African-American women writers in this country whose lives have ended in literary obscurity and poverty. The one most familiar to us, whose works are thankfully back in print due to the efforts of Alice Walker and others, is Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston was one of our most pro prolific and well-known writers in her time. She was educated, well-traveled, experienced, and sophisticated. However, she was constantly plagued by financial difficulties. She was vilified by some, dismissed by others as not a serious writer. We grew up having heard of Langston Hughes, Arna Bontemps, County Cullen, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and Elaine Locke. We had not heard of Zora Neale Hurston, Ann Spencer, Nella Larson, or Jessie Fawcett Redman. We had not heard of hundreds of other black women who wrote their poetries, poetry and plays, stories, and novels. We did not know of them because they were African-American, because they were women, because they were considered doubly flawed. I want to focus in and talk about three black American women poets of the past and what we can learn about their lives, what we can learn from their lives, and what we can learn regarding the future of African-American women writers. There was Phyllis Wheatley, who was stolen from Senegal as a child. She was educated. She was part of Boston literary circles. She had the attention of the white elite of colonial society, including George Washington. She was pub published, she traveled, she was invited to salons. Yet she was totally dependent upon the good graces 
and money of her owners. She was a slave. No matter how well-dressed, well-spoken, or well-mannered, she had no legal status and no financial independence. After the deaths of her owners, she became, in the eyes of others, just another poor black woman who had so much unfulfilled promise. This is what Erlene Stetson, editor of Black Sister, Poetry by Black American Women, 1746 to 1980, has to say about Wheatley. Her charm and intelligence won Wheatley many friends in England and America, and for a brief time she was lionized. But after her return to Boston, she lost her audience. Patrons and acquaintances showed indifference to her work. She married, but her husband repeatedly left her and two of, her three, of their three children died. Finally, poverty and hard work broke her health, and both she and her last child died on December 5th, 1884, two years, I'm sorry, 1784, two years before the book she published in England was published in the United States. After her death in her early 30s, the manuscript she had been working on was lost and never found. Ann Spencer was a poet who lived from 1882 to 1975. The home she shared with her husband, Edward, became a center for the New Negro Movement and its figures, W.E.B. Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, Langston Hughes, and Paul Robeson, to name a few. Although Ann Spencer wrote thousands of poems and her work was praised by influential writers and editors, less than 30 of her poems were published and her career lasted just over 10 years. According to Shockley, she scribbled thousands of poems on pieces of paper which were accidentally thrown out by house cleaners. In Under the Days, the buried life and poetry of Angelina Weld Grimke by Gloria T. Hull, we learn that she was the grandniece of Sarah M. Grimke and Angel Angelina Grimke Weld, two famous abolitionists and suffragists. Angelina Weld Grimke grew up as a light-skinned, mixed-blood black girl in the liberal, aristocratic atmosphere of old Boston. Although she did not want for education, family and friends, or material resources, her life and career was thwarted by internal and external homophobia and the invisibility of black lesbian existence. As Gloria T. Hall writes, because of psychic and artistic constraints, the lines she did not dare went as unwritten as they were unspoken. She was triply disfranchised, black, woman, lesbian, there was no space in which she could move. Grimke wrote little after her father's death in 1930 and lived in isolation in New York City until her death at age 78 in 1958. Hall asked the question, what did it mean to be a black lesbian poet in America at the beginning of the 20th century? She answers the question, with the words of Alice Walker, writing in the collection of essays in search of our mother's gardens. It is a question with an answer cruel enough to stop the blood. 
I look to the lives of Phyllis Wheatley, Angelina Weld Grimke, Zora Neale Hurston, and Ann Spencer, and I know what we must do to pre preserve our future. I know that we must never take the lives and writings of black women for granted. We must hold our lives and our work as precious. I look at the life and work of Angelina Weld Grimke and Zora Neale Hurston, and I know we must not be isolated from our communities and become dependent on people who cannot care as much about our work as we do ourselves. I look at the work and life of Angelina Weld Grimke, and I know that in this time of increasing censorship and backlash from the right, there is no censorship more dangerous than self-censorship for us as black lesbians. I look at the life and work of Ann Spencer, and I know that we cannot neglect our own work while we help others to flourish. We must believe in and speak up for the value of our own writing. When I see more and more publishing houses, magazines, broadcast companies, and newspapers owned by fewer and fewer conglomerates, I know that we must remain mindful of the fact that even when our work is published by mainstream houses, that it is no guarantee that our work will be promoted properly or will always be available. As a bookseller, I've noticed a peculiar phenomenon that has repeated over the last four or five years. Right at the beginning of an academic semester or at the beginning of the Christmas shopping season, the biggest retail sales period of the year, an exciting, well-written, well-produced book by or about African-American women has been unavailable from the publisher. This year, it was Blanche on the Lamb, a funny, witty, thoughtful novel whose protagonist is a black woman posing as a domestic, written by Boston-area writer Barbara Neely. Earlier in the year, The Alchemy of Race and Rights by property rights lawyer Patricia Williams itself a unique alchemy of analysis, legal history, and family history was unavailable at the beginning of the holiday season and was also unavailable at the beginning of the spring semester, although Professor Williams is a visiting professor teaching a course on women and property rights at Harvard. Her publisher, Harvard University Press. <laughs> Last year, the number one available book was Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins. The year before, we couldn't get I Dream a World Portraits of Black Women at Christmas time. Before that, educator and professor Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot and author of Bomb and Gilead, the biography of her mother, Margaret Lawrence, the first black analyst, of her own book for her own book party. Over the years, I haven't been able to help but notice these particular snafus, omissions, and foul-ups. Why does this sort of thing seem to happen year in and year out? Is it that the marketing folks underestimate the quantities needed? Is it that folks are overworked and don't keep track of the sales figures? Is it that people in charge don't believe yet that black folks will buy books and that white folks are interested in what black folks write? 
is it that publishing people feel that they can only count on selling fiction by big name black women such as Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, and Tazaki Shange, and Gloria Naylor? I don't know the answers to my questions. In some situations, it has to do with books getting caught in the middle of reorganizations and buying and selling of companies. Sometimes I would imagine companies are juggling budgets and making educated guesses and from their point of view, taking a gamble on first time authors. I always find myself asking the question, but why wouldn't the publishers want to try to do better and get it right for their own benefit? Why wouldn't they want to stay on top of these books to maximize their profits? A more complicated and I think pertinent answer is this, question is this, don't the folks making the decisions about print runs and marketing realize that these books are important to us? Don't they know that we need these books and that if we know about these books, if we can get access to them, we will buy them and read them? We must not take for granted our small, independent feminist and lesbian feminist presses that publish the work of black women and are committed to keeping their titles in print. Among a few are Kitchen Table Press, Firebrand, and Seal Press. What will ensure the prosperous, fruitful, and healthy future of black women's writing? Barbara Smith of Kitchen Table Women of Color Press said it with others so long ago in Boston, we cannot live without our lives. I would propose a variation of that line for the purpose of this talk. We cannot write without our lives. It may sound ridiculously simplistic and self-evident. We cannot write without our lives. We cannot write without our health. We cannot write without our peace of mind. We cannot write without food, shelter, money, financial stability. All of this, you might say, goes without saying. These things, you might say, are the basics, things to be taken for granted in well-fed, well-educated United States of the 90s. My point is that African-American women writers have never been able to take the basics for granted. We should not be lulled by the resources that we do have. We should not be cowered by those who would tell us that we have too much, are getting more than our fair share, and therefore should want, shouldn't want for more, ask for more, or work hard for more. Who do I look to for another way to live and write? I look to Eve Evelyn C. White, editor of the Black Women's Health Book, who has gathered together a collection of writing that talks about our lives as black women in serious, loving, real, practical, day-to-day -day ways. A book that talks about the difficulties of our lives to ensure that we live to work another day. I look to the life and work of the poet Audre Lorde, a black lesbian feminist, essayist, novelist, who works for the lives of women people of color, gay men and lesbians the world over. She has done all of this while at the same time being engaged in a battle with cancer for well over 12 years. I look to Audre Lorde doing what she needs to do 
to live and to write and to ensure that others of us can do the same. I look to the life and work of Audre Lorde and I know that we cannot, must not take our lives for granted. I look to her and I know what is possible for the future of black women's writing. I take to heart the question she asked all of us. Are you willing to use the power that you have in the service of what you say you believe? As long as we do that, the future of African-American women writers is assured. First thing I have to say, this first thing I have to say is um, I left my notes home. <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll find something to say. Wait. Uh, I guess I guess I should begin where I began mostly in my life, and that is to say that um, there is no future if there's no future, right? I mean, if there's no world, there's no world. Um, that'll take care of a lot of writing. We don't have to worry about it so much, uh, what kind it is or whatever. But um, the truth of the matter is I believe, I really believe there will be one, so therefore I really believe that, uh, that there will be writing, that there will be work. And uh, for me, it just, it just doesn't seem, um, I mean, what comes in the future always are new people. The new people do the work. They do the writing work. And who are the new people? I mean, who have, who have the new people been? Like, there's a wonderful a French, um, some French guy um, has this uh, sentence that I say all the time, like, the world changes, but the avant-garde remains the same. <laughs> and that's because, that's because the avant-garde, it's always seen in terms of form and stuff like that, and, you know, if they pick up the, the page and they throw it up in the air and it falls down different, that's good. So that's one thing. But so, so as far as I, as I look at it, I, I don't see it that way. Uh, but what I do see is that, that, that uh, new work is done by new people. And at right, I mean, in our time, the new people have been the women, you know? So that's been the new work. It's been us. And um, uh, some of it's been uh, as uh, annoying as, as Katha has said, some of it is. And um, some of it has, uh, has been absolutely marvelous. And, but it's, but that's th that has been the new work. And the, next, and, the, and the new work within that movement is the, is the work of, uh, of, uh, of, of women of color. And that, and, and that means that the work of, of, um, of Asian women too. I mean, all of that stuff is coming into the, is, is happening now, and that's, it's, it's, uh, it's not only the future, it's, it's, it's the beginning of the present, so that um, um, uh, Native American writers are writing. This, this, these are the new people for, our, for this country, uh, actually, and, uh, and, and the fact that so many of them are women is, is to me, what the really exciting uh, uh, piece of information about that. And, and of course, it's. Um, I, th I think. I think. Um, 
I think the women's movement has a lot to do with it. I don't think, I don't think that a writing, a writing begins without a political movement. I just don't think that happens, you know? They have to happen at the same time. New writing has got to come along with some kind of, with some kind of political uh, movement. And um, so, that, so that all our writing uh, that we've been doing happens because, be and uh, it happens because we, uh, we have really been, been part, I like to think just like, you know, drops of water on, on, a great, on the great wave of the, of the, uh, of the uh, feminist uh, women's revolution. Uh, and and, uh, and that, that also it is true for the other for the uh, for the other new writings that I've talked about and the new people the new people who are doing the new writing they that they also they also are part of a movement of something political that is happening now um, it, it seems to me if we think of what we have to do in the future and I'm not going to talk long because I said I, I'm, I lost my notes but I'm, I'm really you know I do have a couple things to say anyway it seems to me that um, it you know that um, um, if we do have a future, it, what we have to do, and that means all of us uh, people working and writing, is we have to sort of s really uh, uh, stick to stick to our um, stick to our guns, so to speak. I mean, I'm a pacifist, but I couldn't think of another word. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we have to really stick, bu stay by that, stay s really stay, keep keep our eyes on all those magazines that you mentioned that are that are. are uh, uh, really, so loaded down with um, um, with um, with with uh, only male writers. Keep watching. We're from Penn, and we've really, um, you know, we had a big fight ourselves, and we we won it to the extent that we now have this women's committee, um, and um, uh, we welcome any whether you're members or not. If you if you can think of programs, by the way, this is a, this is a parenthesis. If you can think of, of programs that you think we should do, you ought to write to uh, to to Sybil Claiborne at the at the uh, uh, at the Penn Women's Committee at uh, on 568 Broadway. Tell us what you think we should be doing. Um, we really welcome that. Um, now that close parentheses, etc. Uh, <coughs> whenever you do that, you lose your thread thread of, of thought. You know, but so so what I mean is. Uh, in all our organizations, wherever we work, we really have to remember that uh, um, I don't think there's as terrible a backlash as, uh, as is famously said. I think that we have really, uh, we, are, we are present, we've accomplished a lot of things in different ways, but we really have to keep our eyes open and our ears open, and we really have to maintain our general toughness, all of us, wherever, wherever we are. Um, we, uh, we, the, um, um, the uh, the occasions on which mostly men talk uh, continue, you know, and uh, and uh, and it's really very hard for all of us to keep hearing it all the time, you know. Um, I'm, I mean, uh, I I guess I had I had a kind of an experience, uh, the family experience, uh, during the Gulf War. Uh, my husband, who's a very good guy, as those of you who know him know. Uh, was listening to the radio, and um, and he uh, suddenly turned to me and he said, "There's nothing but men's voices. It must be driving you women crazy." <laughs> and so I I was very uh, gratified that he finally understood the <laughs> the, the source of my neurosis. Uh, 
I really like that man's voice that just floored out of the room, though. <laughs> Uh, so that's one of the things we have to do. We have to really stick to, stick to where we, to, to, to what we're about and what we've been doing. And the other thing we have to do really is remember that we're connected to lots of other things. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're not unconnected to what, uh, to, uh, to uh, 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 military budgets. We're not unconnected to the oppression of those budgets which really uh, withdraw money from our own lives, from the lives of our children. From uh, from the from the lives of the writers you've been talking about who who need who, who you know who need ordinary decent lives, so we're not unconnected to what's happening to this earth. We're just not when you know it, it the, uh, what what um, what men have had against us for a while is also what they had against the earth. You know, so uh, we we should feel pretty close in that way. You know, with no sentimentality, forget it, right? Uh, not no mush. However. Uh, a, a very solid uh, connection in our work and in our life to to the rest of the world. It's that's got to be in our work too, and uh, I think that that's one of the things that Nate Payne Catherine, when she thinks about it, that there these these larger connections are missing. I mean, the per the the, pol the personal is political, and um, and and uh, I stand by that. I uh, I um, I was um, I was. Um, Encouraged by that, made brave by that, and um, and I believe in that. And but I believe absolutely that with that that while the personal is the personal is got its 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 uh, its um, is attacked at all times by the impersonal, and we have to really deal with that uh, as well. Uh, so so those are two things. Stick by what we what we what we are in our own clarity. And remember that we're connected to lots of other to to, uh, to to suffering around this world, which is which is intense, as as you all know. I don't have to tell you any of that. Um, I I want to also say something about some writers. Um, I mean, we have a lot of crazy writers among us. We really do. Some of them are in this audience, you know. <laughs> <coughs> I mean, um, Mary Gordon has this absolutely impossible, unbearable, tough, rough. Irish mother in there that you know, you, you she uh, th there's nothing soft in, in that. Um, uh, Carol M. Schwiller and and Sybil Claiborne have have got a cast of as wild a group of characters as uh, Angela Carter has, and um, and um, I would like uh, all of you to uh, uh, after I read one little thing I want to read, uh, people to all stand up and say the names of the writers you love. And that you that you care about, that you think are doing great work uh, for uh, for women and uh, uh, and for uh, and for the world too. So first of all, I'm going to read a little something because because Sharon Olds did, so I want to. <laughs> it's called responsibility, and um, says it is the responsibility of society to let the poet be a poet. It's the responsibility of the poet to be a woman. It's the responsibility of the poet to stand on street corners giving out poems and beautifully written leaflets, also leaflets they can hardly bear to look at because of the screaming rhetoric. It is the responsibility of the poet to be lazy, to hang out and prophesy. It is the responsibility of the poet not to pay war taxes. It is the responsibility of the poet to go in and out of ivory towers and two-room apartments on Avenue C and buckwheat fields and army camps. It is the responsibility of the male poet to be a woman. 
It is the responsibility of the female poet to be a woman. It is the poet's responsibility to speak truth to power, as the Quakers say. It is the poet's responsibility to learn the truth from the powerless. It is the responsibility of the poet to say many times there is no freedom without justice, and this means economic justice and love justice. It is the responsibility of the poet to sing this in all the original and traditional tunes of singing and telling poems. It is the responsibility of the poet to listen to gossip and pass it on in the way storytellers decant the story of life. There is no freedom without fear and bravery. There is no freedom unless earth and air and water continue and children also continue. It is the responsibility of the poet to be a woman, to keep an eye on this world and cry out like Cassandra, but be listened to this time. really like to hear from you there is a, a microphone over here that can be uh, it, you can take a sort of a Frank Sinatra pose um, it comes out of the uh, podium and um, also if they just want to say writers names. yes and and Grace said also if you just want to say writers names if you want to make a more complicated statement whatever you wish but we'd like to hear from you Would you come down and use the microphone? Oh, I better yeah. use the microphone to ask you to do that. <laughs> but we won't get it on the recording. We really would like it recorded, uh, so if you would speak into the mic, that would be great. Thank you. I'd like to pay tribute to Simone de Beauvoir, who was my first a real intellectual companion uh, and mentor on feminism and okay. do we have someone over here B I would like to pay tribute to a good friend of many people in this room 
the fact that one of our girls has made the front page of the New York Times book review yesterday is to be applauded. <laughs> Blanche Wisen Cook wrote a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt with a very feminist perspective. The fact that the man who, it's interesting, I found out that the man who reviewed it is a conservative, right-wing, against women's studies person who was thoroughly seduced by the book and wrote a very good review. Yes, but if you notice B, he spent his entire time talking about her sex life. Whereas the book deals not just with the sex life, but with her important uh, uh, the consequences of her work <coughs> on legislation for the United States. That didn't even appear in the book, in the review. I actually had a question that I've been wanting to ask Grace, and that is about your decision um, to publish your most recent book of poetry with a, a small independent press. It was a common decision. They made it with me, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually never, um, I, I actually never send these poems out very much, and um, it just it just worked out that way, and uh, and um, I, and I think it's a it I mean for it it was it's a it's a very good experience, and they do work very hard, and uh, that's so that that was my decision. I mean, I just uh, actually truth is, I really um, I I don't know how I decided. It just there were the poems, there was the press, and there we were. <laughs> But I think um, uh, Kate's question brings up uh, a really important issue, which is um, how do we get certain work out, which may or may not pertain in Grace's case. I know for myself, I'm starting a magazine which may even go into a press because I felt that I wanted to create a forum for all the smart writers that I knew who are really writing about that future that we're going to go to. And I don't necessarily see so many magazines, certainly not in the mainstream, where that material um, is. Mary. I want to start with something sort of hopeful, and then I want to get it. I wanted to start with a hopeful story and then talk about a depressing fear that I have. Um, I was in um, Eastern Europe this summer, and I was in the city of Ljubljana about three weeks before it was trashed. And I was reading a scene that I wrote to a bunch of people who really had never read me and had very little English. And it was about um, a grandmother and her grandson on the grandmother's deathbed, and the um, grandson is preventing the nurse from cutting his grandmother's braid. And he then has a reverie about his grandmother's hair. His grandmother's hair then opens up the history of the world to him. Um, a woman who wrote in Slovenian, who had never read me, whom I had never read, told me that she had written in a novel an identical scene <laughs> about a grandson who goes to his grandmother's deathbed, prevents her from having her braid cut off, 
and this memory of his grandmother's hair brings back the past to him. Wow. So there's something out there that we're tapping into. I found that one of the few hopeful things that, um, that happened to me in a long time. Now for the hopeless thing. Um, I guess I, I feel that the whole notion of the printed word as something that is less important to more and more people is something that bothers me and or worries me as somebody who's choosing to work in the printed word. And I know Tony Cade Bambara, for example, is working more and more in film because she feels that the printed word is less and less relevant to her community. And I just wonder if we want to make, I feel in this sad position of loving the printed word, even loving some of the most Mandarin of the printed words, and yet wanting the world to change and feeling that I'm in the wrong business to make that happen. I don't know if anybody else feels that. I'd like to say, especially to you right at the end, that um, you can't hear me? Oh, can you hear me now? Okay. I'd like to say especially to um, African-American women who are writing that your importance may be far, far larger than you may imagine. I'd like to pay tribute to Maya Angelou. Uh, I wouldn't be writing if she hadn't written. I come from South Africa, and books to people like us are not easy to get by. But um, um, fate detected that uh, I would get hold of uh, her... Um, I know why the, uh, the, the cage bird sings. And for me, it was tremendously important to know that even a black woman could write. That's why I write. I have a story I'd like to tell, and this seems to be the right place to tell it. I have a friend called Barbara Moore who wrote a book called The Great Cosmic Mother which Alice Walker put on the outside of the cover. This is one of the most important books I've ever read. Barbara Moore, when she wrote that book, was on welfare. When, she was, when the book was accepted by Harper and Rowe and the royalties started to come in, she lost her welfare because, because she was apparently getting money. In fact, because she'd um, had to have a lot of expenses for permissions, the welfare didn't come through. She had minus checks for a couple years. What that meant was that as a woman of 48, 49, 50, she was on the streets of Tucson homeless for 14 months. And she had a big experience as being, she'd been a feminist teacher, she'd been a poet in, poet in the schools in Santa Barbara. She'd um, really paid her dues as an activist and as a writer and as, a, as an editor of, of a little magazine called Women's Spirit out in the West Coast, which then existed. Um, things are now much better. She has a, ha a roof over her head and the royalties are dribbling back in. I've been involved in raising money for her. Penn has given her money um, and a couple other places have been trying to. But what she tells me is that because she, is, she has royalties coming in officially, that that's not counted as earnings. And that means 
but you're a writer, you're making a living as a writer. It's not earnings when it's royalties, therefore we can't give you welfare, therefore we can't help you, therefore we can't give you disability. And I just think here's a room full of women. If anybody can give me advice on how more to help her, or if we can raise this as an issue in some larger place, um, please let me know what next to do, because I've been trying to do a kind of one-woman campaign for her, and it's, it's time to move out into a bigger world. Thank you. Can you hear me? I wanted to recommend Barbara Kingsolver as one uh, writer uh, for this audience. And uh, first I wanted to address what Katha Paul had said. Um, first of all, I imagine there are probably manuscripts out there with uppity uh, female uh, protagonists that publishers are probably saying, nobody wants to read this and they're not buying them. And the other point is I'm a children's bookseller and I know it's, w it's well known or I'm told that that girls will read uh, books with boys and girl characters yeah. and boys will only read books with boy characters and I imagine that they assume the same thing for men and women, that women will read books about anybody and men only want to read about men. So even if we have the moral authority to speak to men and women, what are the publishers uh, thinking about whether, you know, who, you know, who wants to hear us? That's, a, that's something to perhaps uh, respond to. Um, in terms of um, books being available, um, I think it's I think this is, there's a, there's always this uh, pull, uh, it's true in the gay community, um, the women's community, and the African American community, I'm sure that, there's a, that as, w as books enter more of the mainstream, the, the, the struggle, the, the, the decision whether to support um, mainstream uh, publishers and bookstores in their effort to bring formerly uh, marginalized writers into the mainstream or whether to continue to support primarily marginalized specialized bookstores like Judith's Room, uh, specialized publishers, you know, who do we support, where, where do we put our money, who do we support? We still want, we want ourselves to come out into the mainstream. At the same time, we don't want to take money and food out of the hands and mouths of the people who are, you know, out there, the first ones to publish and the first ones to market some of these uh, people. And the other thing, but the other thing is, people like us have to go into the mainstream bookstores and constantly, constantly, say, this is somebody I want to read. Why don't you have it in your bookstore? If that's the case, people just have to go in there. Once we know about good writers, we've got to go in there. And you know, enough people go into a bookstore, I know, they're going to say, hey, here's somebody that people are demanding. They'll try to get it. Now, whether, whether the publisher has it or not, that's another story. But, but booksellers, bookstores will respond if enough of us go in there and demand these kinds of books. Um, I feel I have to clarify my idea, which maybe, um, uh, which has been sort of subtly changed. Uh, it may not have been a, a particularly good idea, but it was a different idea uh, than what it has become. I didn't say there weren't uppity women in books by women. I said 
you very rarely, not never, but you very rarely find a female protagonist who is sympathetically portrayed, who is a truly bad person, not an uppity female who we can all admire. Someone who, like Humbert Humbert, who you don't admire. He's a child molester. You know, he's creepy in all kinds of ways. And yet, Nabokov's great genius is that you, he expands your notion of what humanity is capable of. And maybe you see a little bit of someone you know in there. That's very interesting. That's a different point. I'm not saying, I mean, there is a lot of this kind of, oh, sorry, no, I mean, there is a lot of this wimpy fiction I was talking about. That's, it's not the only fiction, of course, that women are writing. It's just the kind of books that I get sent to review, so <laughs> it irritates me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I, the point I was making, although possibly also not um, particularly universally true, is, is a different one than this other one. I want to say the name of Ruth Hirschberger, the poet. She wrote the first feminist sex right. book, and uh, it's been out of print for a long time. She's not only a great poet, but also this book is, is very important, and when she wrote it, she was very young. It was written back in the 40s, and she was told by someone that it wasn't going to do her reputation any good as a poet. And uh, she hasn't had an awful lot of good luck with her work, and perhaps that does have something to do with it. But uh, this is a very important literary book as well as a sex book, and that meant a lot to all women, yeah. and I think it continues to. Yeah. I, I just want to add to that, that it, it, um, it really talked about, uh, uh, about vaginal politics and all of that, and it was written in 1948 by uh, Ruth Hirschberger, and it's called Adam's Rib. And, and you can sometimes get it. I just wanted to say something briefly in reply to what Mary was talking about earlier. Mary, please do not quit um, fiction and go to the movies because it's very clear from all the statements that came after you that we have not even begun to get ourselves really um, solid here. So we need you, so please stay. Right. There's bad people in the movies. <laughs> Before I say anything, I'd like to say that I am from Russia, and I've been living here for the last 15 years and just barely learned to speak English. <laughs> but I've been trying to write, and I would like to thank Catherine Pollitt for finally making me wake up, because for all these years, I always realized that us Eastern European women, no matter how long we've lived in there, we always had a different set of beliefs. We were proud of our affairs, proud of our abortions, proud and never wanting to have any more than one child, also proud of being able to juggle the career and the husband and the, and the children and stand in long lines in supermarkets and drink coffee out of mayonnaise jars. So we went through a lot of hardships and I think that I never thought before tonight that the American Forum was ready to hear this. <laughs> there, <laughs> feel better. Uh, yes, two of you, I, I guess Marina and Katha, spoke about cultural commissars. And um, Grace Pally 
as at least my understanding of what she was saying, is that the new writers in the past 20 or 30 years are, are women. And I was just, first of all, wondering how these two concepts of cultural commissars, yeah. uh, you know, jibe yeah. with Grace's view that the new writers are women, and, no. and mm -hmm. who are the cultural commissars? What effect did they have? What effect might they have in the future? No, I didn't say I didn't say exactly that, but I'll I'll explain what I said. I w I was talking about um, uh, uh, I began by talking about avant-garde work, and I and I wanted to put it in terms that I believe were, were important, and that was uh, not so much um, uh, not so much emphasis on on form, although I think about form myself all the time, but. Uh, but in new, the new people who come along, sometimes it's a new class, you know, like the middle class came along, and that was a new class, and it was doing, you know, writing these great big marvelous novels that we read for years and years and years. And so when I say the new writer, I mean, th when I say they were women, the class of women, if you want to call it that, I just use that, that, that expression to say that that was the new work that when women began to write in in this recent period that that was that was the new writing that was was happening i didn't mean that men weren't writing i didn't mean uh, anything like that but i meant that the new uh, the new work was women's work and the new and the newer newer work within that really was the work of African American women, and as as we move ahead in in the future, new people new people bring their stories. Every every group has another story to tell, and new people bring their stories. So, though though that doesn't mean the other people are going to quit writing, you know, uh, but it some of them should probably, but 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 in general they probably won't, uh, as long as the publishers are there. So, uh, but that's that's what I meant, and that. Uh, um, that's 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 what uh, I was talking about. Not not just that women were writing, but that. So you want to know what we meant by cultural commissary? Yeah, I just well? I didn't mean to suggest that that only women were writers, but in, in maybe I just have a misunderstanding of what a cultural commissar is, or a, that might be part of my problem. It just seemed to be that a new wave of like a new development in writing is women writers and other people spoke of cultural commissars it just didn't seem to me i couldn't reconcile the two concepts as being yeah well wait, let me let me just go on with that it's it's the opposite of that uh there was a period when i first began to write uh, uh which was in the late 50s i w m a couple of my stories were about jewish life right okay so the 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 guy who was helping me out because I might quit writing at any moment uh, was uh, said to me, "You'll do well if you only get off that Jewish dime." Well, he says this to me at the very moment that these that these male Jewish writers are really hitting, hit, you know, leaping up and down on that Jewish dime. So, uh, you know, so what I mean is, so that though that was uh, that was new work that was coming in. Um, the the uh, um, uh, uh, the interesting work coming in from Asian uh, writers and Asian women writers, particularly, is 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 extraordinary. And it's 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 new stories. It's not the same story, and it is the same story. I mean, what what Mary said about about th that same story being told is 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 um, is a story by itself. It's what I call the story of the stories. 
you know, it's interesting because I, cause I, I thought it was odd that both Kath and I used that term, cultural commissar. I'm not sure we even, I mean, I mentioned it in a rather. It's a cliche. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I don't like the brave. <laughs> and, I, and I really threw it off I in a very offhand way, but, but I think there was something somewhat serious behind what I, what I was trying to say, and, and it's, it's somewhat similar to what Katha was trying to say about, about um, a spirit of rebellion, or, or, or maybe can, can we have, I mean, I've always had this idea that couldn't there be a novel about a, a female shlemiel? I have this idea that somehow that hasn't been done, or there's, there are sort of other kinds of characters that, that, that intrigue me that I haven't seen as much, but um, when I was thinking about the cultural commissar, I was actually, um, thinking from the perspective of being um, just sort of emerging and actually the problems of being labeled as an ethnic writer or not being an ethnic writer um, in, in sort of the opposite way. That if you write about ethnic themes, that's all you do. And that if you do both, somehow they don't know what to do with you. And I, I think there's a lot of, of that going on as, as, as well. So, uh, so I'm kind of interested in somehow, well, you do that and, and maybe you do something else, that somehow we don't let those kinds of definitions become too restrictive around what we're doing. And I think the same thing happened with women's writing, um, that somehow it became women's writing in a negative sense, not in a positive sense, that somehow the market turned it into something restrictive. And I think we have to somehow, these are new stories, you know, ethnic stories and, and, and stories of women of color, but somehow we always have to fight against the way um, there's a limitation starting to be imposed on us the minute there is a label for us. Hmm. I meant something completely different, although what you're saying is very true. Um, what I meant was simply sort of the gatekeepers of um, highbrow middle and middlebrow culture, essentially. I didn't mean our side. I meant them. Uh, <laughs> who decides what novels get long and prominent reviews and who decides what gets a little briefly and who decides what doesn't get reviewed at all. Um, these are, I mean, it's, it's awful. I, I hate to sort of talk about, you know, art in these sort of crass terms, but, you know, one does notice these things. You can't help it. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that writing by women has been, has made tremendous inroads into that culture. I mean, I think it's very different now, but I think that it's, it, it, there is a little sense it's there on sufferance. Um, and that if you, you know, if you just, I mean, it would be very interesting to write, to read or write a sociological discussion of all this, like how, what kinds of, what kinds of books by women get you know, very foregrounded, get a lot of attention. What kind of books by men? Are they, you know, what ways are they the same? What ways are they different? Um, what, ha you know, what, what happens when a prominent woman writer writes a book that isn't so good versus what happens when a prominent male writer writes a book that isn't so good? You know, do, are, do they equally get the sort of pat on the head, wonderful review that sort of you reading between the lines, you sort of know you don't want to read this, you know, or what, you know? Um, I, think that, I think that there are a lot of differences in the way works by the two sexes are, are you know, are presented in the culture of reviewing and the culture of publishing and the distributions of rewards and favors. Um, that's what I meant. 
I just uh, want to say uh, one thing, and then Grace wants to say one thing. Clearly, we're on a topic here that matters to us. All right. Um, you got to make the distinction between what gets published, how it gets published, who reviews it. Um, I'm a woman. I'm a lesbian. I have to tell my story. It is my work to tell my story. If it gets published in XYZ, great. If it gets published somewhere else, great. If it doesn't get published, that's not so great. But the truth is, much of what we're writing about forces its way into the mainstream. It is not accepted gladly, but that's why we're here, is to do that. And the minute you let go of your own story, the minute you stop telling that story and worry about the rest of it, you are in serious trouble. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, I mean, you really, I mean, it, it really is what, what, what Lindsay said. Um, uh, I, it, uh, I think it's a, a great thing to be a woman writer. And, uh, and, and, they, and, uh, and, and they can call me that till the cows come home. Okay. I think we're ready for you. Um, I just want to mention uh, a couple of writers. Well, I'm sh probably most of the people in this room have read Marge Piercy and Faye Weldon, but they are women writers of particular vision. Um, I always enjoy reading. But um, there are also women writers in science fiction, women looking, uh, women imagining alternate worlds. Oc Octavia Butler, Octavia Butler. I'm not sure how you say her name, but she's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Um, and then there are uh, people who've been um, around for a while, like Ursula Le Guin and Joanna Russ, and uh, a woman with a, a male pseudonym, James Tiptree Jr., whose real name, I think, is Alice Sheldon. Um, wonderful feminist science fiction. There's a woman, Linda Hogan, who wrote uh, a book recently about how Native Americans in uh, Oklahoma were cheated out of their land by the oil barons. Um, it's a book called Mean Spirit. It's in the library. And um, Paula Martinak, uh, another very fine writer who wrote a book called Out of Time that I believe is also recently published about um, women's, women's history, um, a woman living in New York, a uh, lesbian love story uh, combines a lot of threads. It's really a, another book to look for. Thank you. I would like to thank Sharon Olds for keen insight. Uh, speed, was it a male poet who's a woman? She seems to have a sense of the complexity of it. Um, you mean Grace? Yeah, Grace, you what? read that thing by Sharon I, I was whispering. What? what Did you say the, the responsibility of the male poet to be a woman? Sure. Sure, because it's not so much general as it is kind of like a yin-yang complementary thing. Um, I was thinking about writing. Part of the reason I write is because I'm a frustrated, miserable guy. And the only way I can get my uh, yayas out is to put it on the page. And when the passion is too great, I wrinkle it up and throw it away. If the passion is greater, I gouge the page. 
depending on the level or the, the intensity of expression, we pick our medium. Mm. Now, the chores that stand between us and our writing are as important as the writing itself. Now, this might be hard for a woman. It's not hard for me. My mother brought me up at the sink, and she absolutely made it clear that there are chores that are as important as the things you think you want to do now. So patriarchy is kind of coming to the point where it's not sexy or glamorous yet, but cleanup work and kitchen duty are necessary and becoming more and more honorable. So I think this is true for all us writers, that part of the urge to write is really celebration. There's this urge to say, hey, I'm alive. Mm -hmm. And if we had a container for our story, I suppose we could whisper it into God's ear without even setting it down. Because it's dutiful, it's laborious, it's not fun. I think we get caught in this world thing, oh, I gotta be a writer. The word can barely capture it. I mean, the thoughts, the feeling, the subtleties that we're trying to capture perhaps escape the written word. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we only have till 10, so we either end with a question or we have to move on to the next comment. Okay, thank you. I agree that um, women's books should be in all the major bookstores. All the good writers should be in all the major bookstores, and particularly women, and it's often the case that they are not. Meanwhile, we have a women's bookstore called Judith's Room which many of you know. Many of you were at a party recently at Judith's room and the place was packed. It's only once a year that the place is packed and it's almost always empty. I live near there and I go in there, you know, and it's sad. Those women are working very hard to make an excellent bookstore in addition to having uh, readings almost every week poetry and fiction, and giving something uh, of a women's community without even spelling it out, it's there. But uh, I will say where it is in a minute, but that bookstore is uh, seriously threatened. We did have a women's bookstore once called Women's Books, and that went down the drain. I don't really know why, but it was really sad. Then for years we had nothing, and then Judith's room came. Judith is Shakespeare's sister, if you get it. Room. <laughs> uh, anyway, Judith's room is located on Washington Street between Charles and Perry, and it has an excellent selection and a very good atmosphere. I really want to urge you to go there, and you may soon get a leaflet from some of us urging you again to do what you can for Judith's room. Uh, just to add s something to that, uh, if, if any of you... Um, Speaking as a woman's bookstore person, I know it will make a big difference to Judith's room. If any of you who have reading groups or classes, if you order your books through them, it will make an immense difference. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask a little bit about the politics of what it's like to be um, in the publishing business or I as a writer, you know, what goes on, like Kate mentioned a little bit about all the bullshit about publishers running out of books and, you know, that's that end of things. And I don't, you know, I'm not involved, you know, I'm not a famous writer and I'm <laughs> not publishing famous writers, so I don't really know, you know, what's going on, what sort of things are happening. Um, one thing Kata said is that, you know, we should, that 
one of the things of the future is to, you know, be right to write more um, of, you know, bad, you know, about all sides of humanity and so forth. And I was just wondering if the, you know, a lot of the control or a lot of women, a lot of what's published, you know, by women is published by women's presses and publications. And would there be a tension between um, having those things published by women's, you know, publishing things that may not seem to be as acceptable? I mean, would there be a problem with that? Um, you know, I, I have a, I know someone who wrote something and she didn't contact the right people, the right names, and so she didn't um, get as much recognition. A lot of um, the reviews were very negative because she didn't, this, was, this wasn't a fictional piece, this was a non-fictional piece, but this is just an example of the publishing business, which is, you know, because, you know, there's certain cliques within, you know, women's writing, and she didn't, you know, talk to the right people in those cliques and wasn't able to do that, and I'm just wondering how, you know, is the, um, what is the, what is the politics of publishing? Like, is there an openness? You know, like the men's world is, you know, who you know, you know, you can't get in without knowing certain people and that sort of thing. Is that true for women's publishing too? I, I think one of the things we could reply is that not enough recognition is really every human's problem and we all wish that we would get more. Uh, as to whether it's a conspiracy, sometimes it is and I think that uh, sometimes it isn't. Uh, does anyone else have anything they want to add to that? That just about says it, I think. All right. I would like to pay tribute to an early feminist writer who remained a feminist writer till the end of her life, which tragically was a week ago. I'm speaking of Eve Merriam, whose early work, uh, um, After Nora Slammed the Door, is a landmark feminist book who wrote Growing Up Female in America, which was dramatized as out of my father's house, who um, wrote many poems and children's books on the, uh, with the interests of women at heart, and whose final work, uh, as yet unpublished, is called Down the Manhole, a brilliant uh, stream of consciousness feminist work, which I hope uh, will be published soon. Thank you. Andre, let's end with you. All right, I'll try to be brief and unfocused if I can. I just, <laughs> I want to pay uh, some tribute to Monique Vitigue, who blew my mind this year by reconciling me with um, the idea that no ideas can stay fixed, that as soon as they do, they become a new oppression. And my struggle in growing up has been to accept that there might be some redeeming qualities to the opposite sex. and. Um, in her book, Le Guerriere, she shows a world that women take over and, and there's new, it's just, it's the same thing only it's reversed and it's, no, it's not a place you'd still wanna live. And um, I just wanna say that while that's true also, my second point was that I threw away my television many years ago. I don't buy the New York Times very often and since I've stopped doing that, the books that I need to read and the people I've needed to meet have started coming into my life. So maybe the idea of Adam Smith's invisible hand, the market, <laughs> you know, maybe we can throw that out and let life bring us what we need. That's very idealistic, <laughs> but thank it's you. It's a great way to end, thank you.
Now, let's all go out there and have a reception.